0: Could you turn to John chapter 20, verse 1? Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Um, That's actually John himself. This is from the Gospel of John, so he just refers to himself in the third person the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. And so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally the other disciples the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside, and he saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. And now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this, he turned around, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will then go and get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I've not yet descended to the Father. Go and to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord and she told them that she had said these things. She told them that he had said these things to her. That's the word of the Lord. Just suppose for a moment uh, that you'd received a letter from a law firm. It's on official paper, in fact it looks very official. And it says that you have um, a distant relative who's passed away, someone that you didn't know about and you're about to come in to an inheritance of millions of dollars. You'd be skeptical, right? There's more sort of scams around today than ever before but suppose that there was a a telephone number there on the letter for you to ring. You'd probably give them a ring, wouldn't you? I mean, the offer would just be too amazing to overlook. Even though you were feeling skeptical, you'd probably go and give them a ring. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is a little bit like this. It offers so much that it would be crazy for you to overlook it no other religion offers as much as Christianity does through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you like, for example, a resurrection body that'll never get old or sick? Sounds pretty good to me. Would you like to spend eternity in a perfect, renewed earth where there's no more hunger or suffering or crying or death? And why would you want to miss out on the opportunity of living in such a place forever with God, and with your loved ones. Never have to wash a dirty dish again in your life. <laughs> Never have to pick up a dirty pair of underpants and put them in the, in the wash basket. And this passage today, um, it's actually quite a good place for us to start if you're feeling a little bit skeptical but you don't want to overlook this amazing offer without checking it out. And so we're gonna learn three things about the resurrection today. The first thing that we're gonna learn is that it is rational. The second, that it's merciful. And then lastly, that it is deeply personal. Let's go to the first one, that it's rational. Popular opinion would like us to believe that there isn't any evidence for the resurrection. Do you remember that Richard Dawkins quote that I gave a couple of weeks ago? That's what he wrote. He wrote that religious faith means blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth, of evidence. But this isn't the case. Part of the reason why we devoted eight weeks to that tough question series was to show that Christian belief commences with the conviction of the mind based on adequate evidence. Christianity is not a blind leap of faith, rather it's a step of faith based on very good evidence. So now if you're skeptical about the resurrection, Let me tell you that you have nothing on uh, Mary, Peter and John. In their lifetime, they'd they'd seen a whole lot of well-known pretenders to the throne of Messiah, and all of them had ended up killed by the Romans. None of them had risen from the grave. So why should Jesus be any different now that he'd been executed? Surely the whole point of being Messiah was to overthrow the Romans, not to be killed by them. And so for the disciples, the death of Jesus was the end, because the majority of Jewish people did not believe in a resurrection from the dead, there wasn't a second chance. There was, however, a small group of Jews that did believe in a resurrection, a sect, but they only believed that it would happen at the end of time. So for Peter and Mary and John, this was the end. And the idea that the resurrection would be a possible explanation for the empty tomb wouldn't even have been on their screens. Mary assumed that someone had stolen Jesus' body and she told Jesus and John, uh, Peter and John and they both started running towards the tomb. John arrived first because he could run the fastest. And he tells, us in, he tells us in verse five that he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying in the tomb, but he didn't actually go in. But Peter was different. He ran straight into the tomb, and this is significant. He also looked differently as well. The Greek word for John's looking was blepo, which means to, just to have a cursory look but it doesn't tell you anything special about the way that he looked or anything else. But the word that Peter used, you'll recognize it's theoreo. It's the word from which we get theorize or to form a theory. Theoreo means to observe intently, looking for an explanation. So just to give you an idea of the difference, for example, if my son Matthew went into the bathroom Uh, lifted up the lid of the wash basket and put his dirty clothes in, we're talking completely hypothetically of course, (laughs) this sort of thing never happens, (laughs) but if he did that and looked inside he would be having a blepo, just a quick glance inside to make sure that he got everything in. But if Gail on the other hand was going up to the wash basket, she would be having a theoreo when she looked inside because she would look inside there and see, for example, that my clothes were in there. And she would immediately start trying to make sense of the evidence. <laughs> what on earth are Ian's clothes doing in the wash basket? Because Ian never puts his clothes in the wash basket. He normally uses it as a target and throws um, bits of dirty linen or washing at it. And so she would be like, oh, I wonder what happened there? Is, is he, has he been reformed? You know, as, I mean, maybe he's been born again, I don't know. Or, or maybe, maybe it was the maid who did it. But that's the difference between having a blepo and a theoreo. And Peter was trying to make sense of the evidence. What was the evidence? Well, he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So I wonder what Peter was theorizing based on this evidence. If grave robbers had stolen the body, why had they left strips of linen behind? Why would you discard the valuable spices that were wrapped up in the linen? John tells us how much spice was used, and it was a quantity that was actually fit for a king. He says there in John 1939 b Nicodemus brought, to, brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, that's over 30 kgs, and expensive stuff, and taking Jesus' body, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea wrapped it with the spices in the strips of linen. So if grave robbers had come, sorry, by the way, there's a reference there to that being the same sort of amount that was used to bury kings uh, in the Old Testament, if grave robbers had come, they would have wanted those expensive um, spices and they would have taken the body as a whole. But if followers of Jesus or the authorities had taken the body, why had they unwrapped it? Surely it would be much easier and a lot more sanitary to handle the body whilst it was wrapped up. I mean, after all, it had been torn to shreds um, by the whipping and the crucifixion and the torture. And just as an aside, if the authorities had stolen the body in order to discredit the resurrection, why is it that they never presented it? And why had the people who'd removed the body taken so much trouble to fold up the face cloth? There were no plausible explanations for Peter as he flipped through the possible explanations, unless Jesus had been raised to life. That theory would fit the evidence. And the fact is that against all the odds, Peter, John, and the rest of the disciples went on to believe in the resurrection. And this belief did them absolutely no favors in life, I can assure you of that. They had extremely difficult lives, and as a result of preaching the resurrection, all but one of them came to a very sticky end. Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthian church just 20 years after the crucifixion, and this is what he said in it. He said, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, in other words, John, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. And so he puts the evidence out there as well, 20 years later. He says if you want to find out whether this actually happened or not, whether the resurrected Jesus was seen, there were 500 people who saw him at once, and since it was only 20 years ago, many of them will still be alive. So there was evidence for the resurrection in the tomb, but there's more. The first significant intellectual um, opposer of Christian belief was a man called Celsus, he lived about 150 years after the the death of Jesus. And he sought to prove that Christianity was a sham. And his main line, line of attack against Christianity was the resurrection. And how did he argue that it was a sham? By attacking the testimony of Mary Magdalene. And this is what he said, and I'll quote, How can you expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? At the time of Jesus' death and and for many centuries to follow, the testimony of a woman was not considered valid. It is today, of course, because I don't want to get taken out by anyone (laughs) yet. Yet. And this is significant. All four of the Gospel writers record that Mary Magdalene was the first person to see Jesus alive. (coughs) Why would that be? The only plausible explanation, and and this is conceded by historians across the spectrum, is that she was the first person to see Jesus alive. And Jesus chose to reveal himself to Mary in spite of the damage that it might do to the case for his resurrection. So this passage gives us a taste, just a taste, incidentally, of the evidence that there is for the resurrection. There's a lot more in the Bible, a lot has been written about it. Go and read about it, I would encourage you to do that. Investigate, the resurrection is rational. But that's not all, and and this is the part that I really love, it's merciful. There's something wonderfully admirable about Mary. Peter and John, they run there, they observe, they theorize, and then they go home, shrugging their shoulders, but not Mary. Her love for Jesus is so great that she's utterly devastated, inconsolable, just gutted. All she wanted, the whole reason why she went to the tomb was to get a final opportunity to look at her precious teacher. Even though he would have been beaten beyond recognition, But the thing is, she's utterly clueless. The evidence is staring her in the face, but she doesn't get it. Even when Jesus approaches her, she doesn't recognize him until he reveals who he is to her. So here's what we learn. No matter how much you seek and search and observe, and yes, we are to go and look for the evidence. You'll only trust Jesus when in his mercy, He reveals himself to you. Does this mean that you shouldn't seek and that you shouldn't search? By no means. But when you find Jesus, you will realize that he was helping you all along. And this discovery is not based on your efforts or your intelligence, but on his grace. Isn't Jesus infinitely merciful? He's revealed himself to people like Mary and people like you and I, not on the basis of our efforts, but on the basis of grace and mercy. But there's more here. Christ's mercy is not based on our efforts, yet more is it based on our qualifications. The gentile doctor Luke tells us in his gospel that Mary Magdalene had been delivered of seven demons. And in this context, the number seven is sort of like Hebrew speak for an uncultable multitude, a legion of demons. Now Mark describes a case like this in his gospel. The person wandered around naked. He lived amongst the tombs. He had superhuman strength so that nobody could control him. Every time they chained him up, he broke the chains. He wandered around at night amongst the tombstones, screaming, and Mary was a former demoniac. She was a reformed mental case, and yet she's the first person that Jesus appears to. And he chooses her to go and tell the disciples about his resurrection. This, it just beggars the imagination that Jesus would choose a former madwoman to be his ambassador. Can you imagine what it must have been like for the disciples? Mary Magdalene runs up and says, I've seen Jesus. And they're all thinking, oh my word, she's having another one of her episodes. <laughs> but of course, she wasn't. She'd been completely healed. What do we learn from this? For Jesus doesn't choose you to be his ambassador on the basis of your past accomplishments. He doesn't do it on the basis of your wealth or your looks or your intelligence. He chooses you on the basis of mercy. Isn't it wonderful? The resurrection is rational and merciful. And then lastly, it's also intensely personal. Just look at how Jesus returns. If you were writing this particular plot, would you have written it this way? And think of how Superman returned um, in in, in his story. There's a stadium full of people and an aeroplane is is coming to crash into it and he flies down, he catches the aeroplane and he saves everybody. I mean, surely God could have done a better job of writing the end of this plot. (laughs) could have sent Jesus maybe to the peak of the the pinnacle of the temple maybe he could have thrown himself off with a legion of angels around him but instead Jesus chooses a personal encounter with a rehabilitated mental case and he's so gentle he doesn't invalidate her feelings and say, no, 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 you mustn't cry, or didn't you read the scriptures? Isn't it obvious that this was what was gonna happen? Now he just asks her questions, helping her to find out what's wrong. He doesn't say, it's me, ta-da! Because <laughs> it's not about him, is it? Personal, it's about Mary. He doesn't say, good morning, Miss Magdalene. He just says, Mary. Tim Keller says that Jesus loves you personally, expensively, he died on the cross, and eternally. And you were created to need this kind of personal love, although culture would lead you to believe that you don't. Culture says that to find a sense of identity, you've got to look within. Jesus says, no, look to him. He says, know me, and then you'll know yourself. And of course, it's possible for us to know Jesus because He wants to have a personal relationship with us. That's exactly what he's telling us in today's passage. Mary was so overwhelmed that she flung herself into the arms of Jesus. And he said to her, and this is the literal translation of the Greek, don't hold on to me so tightly. You see, Mary's personal relationship with Jesus was still very much bound to the physical, to the physical man, Jesus himself. She couldn't imagine a personal relationship with the Jesus that was no longer on earth and a physical being. And perhaps you can't either. But on one occasion, Jesus said to his disciples that it was better for him to return to the Father so that he could send his presence to us in the form of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that you can have a closer personal relationship with Jesus now than if he were a man sitting in this room? And yet most of us would want him to be a man sitting in this room. But if he was, we'd all be competing for his attention. If he was, he would be outside of us as a physical person rather than inside of us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Jesus is right inside our skin, folks. And there's nothing more personal than that. I would just like to close now by reflecting on Thomas let me just read to you from the Bible now Thomas also known as Didymus one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came so the other disciples told him we've seen the Lord but he said to them unless I seal the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side I'll not believe a skeptic looking for evidence This is for us now. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And now John writes the purpose of his gospel, and I'd like to leave you with this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Shall we pray? Father God, I thank you that there are so many folk with us today who do believe and have received life in the name of Jesus. And Father, I'm asking that today you would help us to move to a different level of life, that you would help us move to a greater experience of the personal love that you have to offer us through Jesus and his presence in us with the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to connect with you this week. Help us to really drill down into the truth that Jesus is closer to us now than he ever was when he was a man on earth. That we have something within us that can lead us to a quality of life we've never imagined and a quality of life that will never end. Life that will continue forever in eternity with you, Father God. And Father, I pray for those people who are like Thomas, like Peter and John in the tomb, who are having a theoreo, trying to make sense of the evidence. Father, I ask that you would open their eyes, that you would enable them to see mysteries which otherwise could not be seen unless you had revealed them. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.